All right. Deuteronomy 6, if you have a Bible. Deuteronomy 6. After uh, speaking at the, the funeral on Monday, I know this, I never, um, because I did not have an opportunity to stand in that pulpit before I got, you know, with my time to walk up there to speak. And when I walked up to speak, they had a, first it was a handheld mic, so that was odd, because, like, okay, if I'm going to read something and I got a handheld mic, I never used a handheld mic, um, or maybe did, when we first got here, I think we had a handheld mic, like the very, 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 very beginning, and I got rid of that as fast as humanly possible, because that's just weird trying to do a, you know, trying to read and turn pages with, while holding a mic, it's just, I don't know, that's, it was crazy. So they gave me a, a handheld mic. Uh, so I had not been up there, and as soon as I, uh, I, I reached down to, to grab the mic, I had to turn the, uh, press the button to get the light to come on, right? So I had to press the button to get the light on, and of course, you know, I'm already emotional because I'm pre- speaking at a funeral, right? So I'm sitting there trying to figure all of this out. I get it, uh, and then I looked up, and that was like, I had ne- it was insanity because the way the whole place is designed... It, I mean, it's got like the mood lighting, it's, you know, lights on the ceiling, it's all dark, right? And it's all stage lighting, right? So as soon as I looked up, I couldn't see anybody. I couldn't see, no, I like, I couldn't see anyone in the front row, second row. I could see people standing in the back, right? I could kind of see like shadows. And I'd never preached where I couldn't see anyone. It was so weird. It's like being on a stage. And it's like, I'm used to... Yeah, yeah, you didn't want to, you didn't want, I didn't want to like take a couple of minutes because I had a, I had like a, a, a strict 15 minute, right? So I didn't want to take a like, well, if you're out there, you know, like, you know, you, you, it's a funeral, so you know, you can't like joke around, but it's like, I needed to like process what was happening because when you're, when you're speaking about something like that, you kind of want to see f- faces. So you can kind of go, did they, I don't know, they understood that, but like you can clarify or something, but it was, it was so, I've never been, I've never preached in a place where you can't see anything. It was like doing a performance. It felt weird. It was like, it was almost like I was, like, I knew people were there, but I didn't know people were there. Like, it, I, I've never experienced that. So I'm glad to be back where I can actually see people. And, and so, yeah. But Deuteronomy 6, right? it was just, it just, it took a very emotional situation and made it even more complicated and more difficult because I was not prepared for it. If I'd have been prepared for that, maybe okay, but it was like, it was, it was not easy. All right, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. If we understand temptation to be an enticement to evil, which involves a direct, like either direct or indirectly trying to get us to do evil, or a trial which could motivate us to do evil or to think, speak, desire, feel, or act in a way which is contrary to God's word. So if we understand that basically a temptation is anything, right, whether a a direct or indirect enticement to evil or a trial, which gets us to think, speak, 
desire, feel, or act in a way which is contrary to God's word, then we can then, once we have that basic concept down, then we can easily identify, okay, that is trying to get me to think, act, feel, speak, you know, in a way contrary to God's word. And then we can break those different kinds of temptations down, going, okay, here's the temptation, and it's getting me to think, speak, act, or feel, desire, or act in a way contrary to God's word. And then we can try to classify all the different way, uh, all, what the different kinds of temptations are. And there is one temptation that I, 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 we all experience it. I don't really know exactly how we process it, but it's the temptation to put something before God. It's the temptation to put something before God. And I guess I struggle, and the reason I kind of stumble over my words there when I re- reference it as a temptation is I don't... Like, there's a part of me that says it's a temptation, but there's another part of me that just says, literally, that's like 24-7 of our life, right? Because no matter how much, we, we can try to argue and say all day, you know, like if you, if you go up to a person, and, and especially if they are a Christian, right? Sometimes in the military, they may ask this, you know, what are the three, your three most important things in your life, right? Well, the Christians always say, God family, and then their job or whatever, right? It's always God. I mean, every, every creed, you can, you can hand it out. If I hand out a piece of paper to everyone, name the three most important things in your life. Every one of you are going to write down God. Everyone's going to say it. Now, if God's the most important thing in your life, what does that look like? First, what does that look like? I, 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 and, and how would we typically define, if God is the most important thing of your, in your life, how would we typically justify that or prove that? We would look at time spent, maybe where you give, you, you use your money for, right? Okay, All right. You're, what you talk about. And almost in every one of those factors, what would we determine about most Christians? God is not. Okay. So nobody wants to admit that, right? And if you say that, people will get offended, but it's just a reality. What are the things that are typically the priority in our lives? Okay, yeah. I, I don't even think we need to categorize it. It's simply, it's us. Right? Look, the God, I, I do believe God is the most important thing in our lives. But the God... It's us, okay? That, I, I do believe God is the most important thing. I, I think everyone is truthful that God is the most important thing in our lives. We're just not defining which God we were referring to because the God we are referring to is the God of self, right? Because we do everything ultimately to what? Benefit ourselves. Look, there, if self wasn't the most important God in your life, you probably would never get into an argument or fight with anybody, Right? Yeah, who cares? Because you don't care about how you feel or how you think, right? But when we stand up for ourselves, when we fight because of our feelings and our desires. So I have a hard time saying that this is a temptation because it, to me, it's just the normal way of operating. But yet there is much discussion about it. So we're going to talk, uh, we're going to try to finish this in one hour. I, I really have to. We're going to try to talk about this temptation of putting things before God. I just struggle with calling it a temptation, all right? So we're going to go to Deuteronomy chapter 6. There is a specific section that we're supposed to look at, 
But I'm going to try to look at a good portion of at least most of the chapter because I, I think it's interesting the way it's designed. All right. So if we look at Deuteronomy, we have to kind of just make sure we know where we are. When we think of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy is written somewhere around 1406 BC, according to some people. All right. Deuteronomy is written around 1406 BC. And it's at the end of the 40 years of wandering endured by the nation of Israel. So Israel has wandered around for 40 years. What happened during those 40 years? Okay, people died. An entire generation died off. Why did they die? Disbelief, right? Disobedience, rebellion, right? Because in a roundabout way, what did they put before God? Themselves, right? God is like, here's the land, and they're like, uh, that looks like trouble. What, we're, what, you know, we're just going to go back to Egypt, right? All right. So that, in, so it, it, you could argue that entire gener- generation did what? Failed. They sinned. All right. So now they're getting to the end of that forty years. At the end of that forty years, so and and at this time for Deuteronomy, the people were camped on the east side of the Jordan River on the plains of Moab, across from the city of Jericho. Right, and we can get a little bit of this in Deuteronomy one one. Uh, kind of gives you an idea of where they are if you want to look at it. Deuteronomy one one and names a bunch of places. These uh, be the words which Moses spake unto all Israel on the side of Jordan and the wilderness and the plain over against the Red Sea, and it names all of the locations. Right? Okay, so we kind of see where they are. They were on the verge of entering the land that had been promised centuries early to their fathers. And so this is to prepare them, in a sense, as they get ready to go into the land, to prepare them and give, basically recount to them God's expectations, God's commands, God's law. Now, you, you would hope that based off the previous example of failure in judgment, because they've been walking around 40 years watching people die, and after the fact they've already had God's law, now this is in a sense a retelling of God's law, that these people would be prepared to be successful. But we know what's going to happen when they go into the land. What's going to happen? They're not going to follow it, which again, there's a pattern here that that develops, but you get the idea. Okay, so that kind of gets us the setting. Now we're going to look at Deuteronomy 6. We're going to break it down. We're going to possibly break it down into three parts. All right, so let's just start reading and then we'll try to outline. All right, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Let's start in verse uh, 1. Now these are the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord your God commanded to teach you that you might do them in the land whether you go to possess it. That thou mightest fear the Lord thy God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command thee, thou, and thy son, and thy son's son, all the days of thy life, that thy days may be prolonged. Hear therefore, O Israel, and observe to do it, that it may be well with thee, that you may, may increase mightily as the Lord God of thy fathers have promised thee, and the land that floweth with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto the children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in the house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. 
and thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as a frontlets between thine eyes, and thou shalt write them upon the post of thy house and on thy gates. All right? Now, starting at verse 10, and it shall be when the Lord thy God shall have brought thee into the land. I, I'm going to argue that verse 10 starts a different section. So the first section for our outline, I'm going to say is Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 9. You may disagree. I may be breaking it down simply because my Bible clearly seems to indicate that's where we should break it down. But for, our, for, this, for this study, we'll, we'll just go there. We could probably develop a better outline But for a very simple outline, we're going to call the first part Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 9, and we're going to reference this as what? What would you call Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 9? Okay, instruction. Commandments, okay. I'm just going to say God's expectations, right? He's giving him their expectations of what he's calling them to do. Basically, how could we sum it up? Sum it up. Do this and prosper. Do this and prosper, right? And what is it? It's going to do well, prosper. Doesn't he mention those words multiple times? But is it do this, do this, do this, do this, do this? Right? Very uh, similar to a law discussion that we've had in the past, right? Okay, so do this and prosper. These are God's expectations. Look at verse 10 and 11. What, what happens in verse 10 through 11? And it shall be when the Lord thy God shall have brought thee into the land, which he swear unto thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give thee great and goodly cities which thou buildest not, and houses full of all good things which thou fillest not, and wells digged which thou diggest not, vineyards and olive trees which thou plantest not, when thou shalt have eaten and be full. Then verse 12 is, then beware. So I'm going to separate verse 12. So I'm going to put verse 10 and 11 separate. And 10 and 11, what would we call this? Okay. Do what? Okay. What did you call it? Promise blessing. Okay. Vision. Anybody else? The good life. Okay. God, actions. I'm going to say it's a remind. I'm going to call it a reminder, even though it hasn't quite happened yet. But here's what is he going? What is he reminding them of? Or what? Or how, how would we? I want to say a reminder. He wants them to remember something when they get there, right? What does he want them to remember? Hey, you're going to have all of this stuff, and it's, you didn't do anything to get it. He's reminding them that what they have comes from whom. Him. Now, I wonder why he would want to remind. Now, I, I, I know maybe the word reminder doesn't work, you know, grammatically, but you get the idea. He, when they get there, he wants them to remember something. Hey, this house, build. This well, dig it, right? This, this material wealth, you didn't earn it, right? This has all been given to you. Now, what? Why would be the reason of making sure they remember that all they have, they didn't earn, they didn't do anything for? Well, I, I think so. So we have, number one, we have the expectations, chapter 6, 1 through 9. Basically, do this and prosper. 
Number two, verses 10 through 11, the reminder, and the reminder is, hey, you're going to have all of this stuff, and it came from me, not from you. And then this leads to the third section. And what happens in verse 12? Then, next word, beware. Then, beware. Um, The NIV uses what word? Be careful. Be careful, beware. All right? And what does he want them to be careful? What does he want them to beware? Lest thou forget the Lord, which, that, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt and from the house of bondage. Here we now, we're going to call this the warnings. There may be more than one warnings, but we'll, we'll at least have one warning, right? Well, at least for now. All right? Now, immediately, you can kind of see why he just reminded them, hey, when you get there, remember this, right? Because they're going to be in danger of doing what? Forgetting God. They're going to be quick to forget God. So if we look at the warnings, let's break all the warnings down, right? Let's break all the warnings down, okay? Because I think there's probably more than one warning. Let's see if, we, if you agree or disagree, all right? Verse 12, beware lest thou forget the Lord. Right, what's the first warning? Don't forget God. Uh, thou shalt fear the Lord thy God and serve him, and thou shalt swear by his name. I'm going to just flip it around. Hey, they're being told to fear God. I think there's a warning there to, to, to make sure they don't stop fearing God. All right? Okay? That third part is to swear by his name. Everybody see that? Which is kind of interesting. How does the uh, uh, NIV translate that? The end of verse 13? Take his oath in his name. All right. All right. I, 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 well, we could separate it out. I'm just going to connect that with not forgetting God. Because even when they make an oath, they're supposed to remember God. I'm just going to connect it with that. And then next, you shall not go after other gods of the gods of the people which are round about you. All right. So I'm going to break this down into two warnings. Right. Uh, so let's go. Th- so number one, don't forget God. Number two, make sure you don't stop fearing God. Number three, do not go after other gods. And then I'm going to br- make another one. Don't be like the people around you. Don't follow the people around you. Don't be influenced by the people around you. Okay, every- got those, got, everybody got those kind of warnings? What are the warnings? Number one. Don't forget God. Number two, don't stop fearing God. Number three, don't go after other gods. Number four, don't be influenced or follow the people around you, however you would like to word it. All right? Then he says, For the Lord thy God is a jealous God among you, lest the anger of the Lord uh, thy God be kindled against thee and destroy thee from off the face of the earth. Okay, that's, that's a strong warning, okay? You could, you could add another warning if you want. Don't do this or you will be destroyed. Okay, that, that's a pretty good warning. And then we have another one. You shall not tempt the Lord your God as he tempted him in Massa. All right? You can add that if you want. Now, we're going to focus on the warnings about doing what? Putting God, what? Second. Putting something before God. Going after, if you're going, if you forget God and you go after other gods and you start allowing the other people around you to influence you, then, then logically, what has happened to God? He's not first place. 
Right? And to go after other gods is to go after what? Idols. This is idolatry. All right, that is what we are going to focus on. All right? Now, we'll go back through the text in a minute and look at it because it raises some serious questions. But let's just, so there's our outline. So we got the historical background, right? They're getting ready. It's the end of the 40 years wandering. They've seen judgment. They've seen people die. They're getting ready to go into the land, right? So God then, in a sense, reminds them, gives them the law to prepare them. And Deuteronomy 6, verses 1 through 9, God gives out his expectations again. Do this and you will prosper. Do this and you will live, right? Then he, in a sense, reminds them in verses 10 through 11, hey, when you get there, remember all that you have is not because of you, it's because of me. And he really wants them to remember that, which fits perfectly with the next section. Because in the next section, we have at least maybe five warnings, but we have at least three major warnings that we want to focus on. And that is, don't forget God. Don't stop fearing God. And don't go after other gods. And then you could say, and don't follow the other people. Don't, 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 don't be influenced by the people around you, right? Those are the basic things. Obviously, you know, don't, hey, also, you know, if you don't do the, if you do the wrong thing, you're going to be judged. And also, don't tempt me. I mean, there's other warnings there, but you get the main ones, right? You get the main ones. So we're going to look at this. So if you want to write a word down, write down the word idolatry. Write down the word idolatry. Now, the definition I'm going to give you of idolatry is as follows. You ready? Idolatry. Extreme admiration, love, or reverence for something or someone. Extreme admiration, love, or reverence for something or someone. Extreme admiration, love, or reverence for something or someone. Now, I think the purest form of idolatry is the, and go through it, uh, uh, through each part. Extreme admiration, love, reverence for self. I think that's the purest form of idolatry, right? We desire that which is about us. Correct? Come on. We don't, we don't think about how our actions, I mean, we, are, are, we, we focus everything we do on ourselves. No, no matter, look, so many times, even sometimes when we do that which is good for someone else, we do it for what reason? Because it benefits us. We can, we can, we can act like all day, oh, I'm doing this for this person and th- look at me. But you're getting something from it. How many times have you heard, I mean, giving is the best gift because of what it does for you. Well, then, you're, oh, I'm only going to give you something because it's going to benefit me, okay? So then, that, that's still selfishness, right? Oh, I feed the hungry. Well, great. But if you do it because it makes you feel good, if it does it because it leaves, now, it's great that someone else benefited from it, but sometimes the motivation is as selfish as selfish can be. 
So even a good thing can be a form of basically self-worship. Go to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. If I can find it, Colossians chapter 3, and you'll notice the verse here in just a minute. Come on. Who stole Colossians from my Bible? Here it is. Colossians chapter 3. Look at verse 5. Well, start in verse 1 for context. Eh, Colossians 3.1. If ye then been risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. The concept is, if if we are Christians, where are we supposed to be focusing? Things above, not where? On earth or inside of us, right? Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. Where are your affections supposed to be? Not towards self, but towards God, Right? Um, for you are dead and your life is hid with Christ and God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then you shall also appear with him in glory. Now look at this. Mortify, therefore, your members, which are upon the earth. Now notice, notice the first one. Fornication. Second one, uncleanliness. Third one, inordinate affection. Evil concupiscence. And then notice this one. Covetousness, which is idolatry. Covetousness is idolatry. All right? How does the NIV put it? Uh, greed. greed is idolatry, right? What, when we think of covetousness, what is covetousness? You covet something, right? You covet. Now, in this case, it becomes idolatry because you are coveting, you're longing, you're lusting, you're wanting that which will do what? Please you. Serve you. It's about you. Covetousness is about what you want. And come on, this is a problem in every family. It's a problem in every relationship. It's a problem in every church. Right? In every church. What is everyone focused on? Remember, I've talked about it before. Anytime I get a phone call, right? typically that Monday phone call, and someone needs to talk to me, is they calling me going, Pastor, I have felt so guilty because I don't think I've done enough to serve you, to encourage you, to help you. Uh, what could I do to help encourage you? What could I do to help the church? No, the call always begins with, I don't like this. I didn't like this in a sermon. I don't like this. I don't like you doing this. I don't do this. Don't do this. And basically, it's almost always a veiled threat that basically says, change or I'm leaving. And, 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 and almost in every case, I'll ask the question, well, if I please you, what about the people sitting in the back? Or what about, usually I'll use Bobby and Diane since they've been here forever. What about the Pierces? Now they're like, well, I'm not saying, and they always try to say, I'm not saying, but that's exactly what they're saying. I don't care about them. And then when people say, peace out, do they care about anybody left behind? No. They're gone because they're focused on self. I mean, that's the way life works, right? And and from the pulpit, what do you think my focus tends to be? 
on me and what's going to make me feel better and what, how things I want to go. Everyone's in it for themselves, but nobody can admit that. So what is idolatry? It's coveting what is best, what, we will, what will please us, what will serve us. From an article on idolatry, they state this. Paul says covetousness, which is idolatry. So what idolatry looks like today is the, is the activity of the human heart. There, this is not a deed of the body that follows a fruit on a branch. It starts in the heart, craving, wanting, enjoying, being satisfied by anything that you treasure more than God. And what do you treasure more than God? Self. That's an idol. Whatever you treasure more than God is an idol, but I'm telling you what we focus on. Here's where I think the church gets it wrong. We always do this, right? We focus on idolatry. I'll use my bottle of Dasani here. I'm going to set it on top of the piano, right? We will say, identify the idols, right? And then we will point to an object, So what are some objects we usually identify as idols? Other people. What? Television. I've heard pastors yell and scream about that. Television. What else? Your career. Vehicles. And we go after those things, right? And so then it becomes this game, right? So how do we play the game? Well, what you focus more on, what you spend more time on, that That is your idol. So you better spend more time reading your Bible, more time going to church, more time listening to sermons. Because I would have preached it that way when when, when I was younger because that's the way I was taught to preach it, right? So then we focus on really just managing, doing something more than this, and then dun-dun-da-da. And there's easy ways to fix that. It's not hard. Christians always make it complicated. Just don't sleep less and you can do all the things you wanted to do. Add a little bit of more Bible reading and then dun-dun-dun-dun, I don't have an idol. Now most people say, most people are not even willing to do that. They're like, I'm going to get all of my sleep, still do what I want, and still tell you God is the most important thing in my life. But we always go after what? The things... The external things. I'm telling you, we've gotten idolatry wrong. The issue is not the things. The issue is those things are about the thing. We're the idol. The things are there for the service of what? Self. We are the idol. Everybody got that? Uh, Paul calls this covetousness a disordered love or desire, loving more than God, what ought to be loved less than God, and only for the sake of God. But covetousness is the condition that this disordered heart is, uh, is an act of loving too much what ought to be loved less. And that is why the wrath of God is coming. That is what idolatry looks like today. It is everywhere in our culture. I can't stand that because that's typically, that's such Christianese. It's where? It's everywhere in, out there, those bad people. Because in here, we all do what? 
We love Jesus more than it. It's such a gay, it's such trash. It's absolute trash. I can't stand when Christ, Christians always want to blame everyone outside of the church. Idolatry is where? Inside every heart. I, I would hate to, I, I, I'll have to correct Calvin. I used to love the quote. What's quotes, uh, Calvin's famous quote on idolatry? Yeah, the human heart's an idol factory. No, the human heart is the idol. It's not, it's not the factory. Put, no, we're the idol. So, because Calvin's looking at it that the heart is an idol factory because we give our heart over to this thing or this thing or this thing or this thing. And they, no, we are the idol. We are the God we worship. We are the God we serve. This article says, what is an idol? Well, it is the thing, it is the thing loved or the person loved more than God, wanted more than God, desired more than God, treasured more than God, enjoyed more than God. It could be a girlfriend. It could be a good grades. It could be the approval of other people. It could be successful in business. It could be sexual stimulation. It could be a hobby, a music group uh, that you are, that you follow, a sports it could be an immaculate yard. He, he names all of these things. And it's like, no, you're wrong. It's you. All of those things that he mentions, why do we love those things? Because it serves the idol, which is self. All of those things are simply, we view them as worshipers of us. They're there to serve us. They bow before us. They're there for our gratification. If we don't get this right, we will always fight idolatry in the wrong way. What's always the, what, what are you always taught to get rid of the idol? You're just always taught to just basically manage your time, right? And your affection and your, hey, don't love that too much. Hey, don't love that girlfriend too much. Why do you love the girlfriend? Because what you get, (laughs) okay? We don't love people because we're selfless and we put others before ourselves. We love people because what they give us. I know that destroys, like, look, look, I know that destroys your romance comedies and I know that destroys the fantasy, but the real life, we love for what we get. And the minute that's even remotely if it, if it if it's remotely in danger, then we go crazy. You better serve me. Rarely are we like, how can I serve you? True. Now there's always variations. Sometimes it's extreme. Sometimes it's mild. We obviously can't paint everything with the same brush. But at our very nature, everything is about us. Everything. All right? It says, so, what, so that could be an idol, or your own looks could be an idol. It could be anything. And, and the, whole, the whole article misses the entire point. I, I want to write the person who wrote the article and go, no, the whole point is, we're the idol, Everything else is there to serve us. I I cannot stress this enough. We have gotten this so wrong. Now, if we go to Deuteronomy 6, here's the problem. If we go to Deuteronomy 6, 
What's the supposed solution to the idolatry? And this is where it gets convoluted and complicated because there's a million books written on idolatry, right, and how to deal with it. And they almost always follow the same kind of pattern. If we look at Deuteronomy 6, what is supposedly the pattern, the solution to supposedly fixing it? Okay, well, if we look at this, the first thing that could possibly be said to be given is, well, the law, right? Because the law says in Deuteronomy 6, 5, love the Lord thy God with all your heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. But let me make it very clear, and nobody's going to like what I'm about to say. If you think that's a solution, you're drinking heavily. Why is it not the solution? If you could love the Lord that God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul, would, would there be a problem with idolatry? No. Can you do it? So what's the solution to idolatry? I'm just saying that, that, that the law right there, I do agree that the law is telling you, but the law is contrasting two things, Right? The law, how do you know you're an idolater? Because you read a scripture that says, love the Lord thy God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul, and immediately you realize you love yourself more than you love God. The problem is we can't admit that, can we? No, because if you ask Christians, what's the most important thing in your life? God. Everyone will say that. I I want a Christian to stand up. God's not even in the top 20. And everybody in the church would be like, kids, get away from him. I'd be like, give me a break. God's like number 40 on your list. You can't admit it. If we were all all honest, God is not even in the top 20. We can say, oh, yes, he is. Yes, he is. Give me a break. Come on. By any reasonable number, we can look at our lives and what dominates our lives. Self, over and over and over and over again. Now, you may say, no, he's at least in my top five. Okay, well, congratulations, you're better than me, okay? But the bottom line is, he's not number one, and I know he's not number one, because no one loves God with all their heart, mind, body, and soul. Therefore, we're all in a perpetual state of idolatry. Oh, boy, nobody, nobody's going to like this. Nobody's going to like this, okay? So if you, if you look at all that, and you could say, well, maybe if we, if we did these things, right? Maybe if we were to teach them diligently and we would talk of them when we sit in our house and when we walk and when we lie down and we would rise up and if we were to bind them uh, upon our hand and frontlets, frontlets uh, between thine eyes and, and write them upon the post of the house, we could fix the problem. So remember Israel, they took some of that pretty literal, did they not? The little, they put the, the law in the little box. They have it wrapped around their arm, posted everywhere. Did did that fix their problem? No, it did not. Because they're going to go into the promised land, and what are they going to do? They're going to turn to other gods really quick. They're going to become idolaters. Why? Now, you can say, well, they didn't do this. 
I'm going to say that no matter how, how much law you give, it's not going to change anything. Let me make it clear. Texas can pass a law that the Ten Commandments are pub- posted in every classroom in the entire state of Texas, and you're not going to change one thing because law doesn't change the reality of the heart. Law reveals the reality of the heart. It doesn't change the reality of the heart. And Christians who don't understand that, as well, we could go through a long, long Reason why? Because nobody understands law and gospel anymore, right? Nobody, nobody. That's why I was working on that series for so long, because I, because I cannot express to you how serious the situation is in the Christian world right now. They don't understand it. And it even provokes it. So, I mean, you're like, we're going to put the Ten Commandments in all the schoolroom to fix the problem. You're only going to provoke it. You're not going to fix it. It doesn't fix it, Okay. The law reveals that there is a problem. So, I, so what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? Well, God offers them a couple of things. We're going to run out of time here. Um, go, to, go to Deuteronomy chapter 6 again. So, we have, so if you looked at verse 1 through 9, if we were to put that as a solution, verse 1 through 9 would be classified as what is a solution? Law is a solution, but we know theologically the law will only do what? What three things will it do? Reveal, possibly provoke, and it should lead to something else. Right? Okay, it should lead to something else. I won't even say repentance. It's got to lead to something else, right? Okay, well, that's a whole, we can get a whole long gospel argument about where repentance comes from. We won't get into that right now, okay? That's a whole theological can of worms. Okay, we won't go into that now, right? So what's the next thing he gives them? He gives them verse 10 and 11. What was 10 and 11? Okay, what, he wants to remind them of what? He wants to remind them, don't turn to other gods because the other gods are not the one who did all of this for you. So in this case, it would be to be reminded, right? The reason we should not put ourselves before God is because whatever we have did not come from us. It came from God. That's a good reminder to have. Why would you put yourself before God when you're, you didn't make the air, you didn't make your heart beat, you, like, you know, something else is in charge. You would think that would work, right? You would think. How, how, how well did that work out for Israel? Did not stop them. So I, I think it's a good reminder. I think it's a good reminder. I'm not saying it hurts. And then what, he gives them the warnings, Right? He gives them the warnings. And the warnings are basically, don't do this. And what's connected to the warning? Basically, you're going to be destroyed if you don't. You're going to be, basically be destroyed. You don't. So, I mean, you can say, basically, what's given here is a solution. I could, try, I could probably try to preach this as a solution, and I could, give you, I could, I could break these into points, like in a typical sermon, and then you could all be like, what a, oh, that was a great sermon, Pastor. Right? 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 Love God and idolatry will flee. Remember the blessings of God and you will not seek those things opposite to God. You will seek the God who gives those things. Right? I, I could preach this really good, right? 
Remember that your God is a jealous God and you will not pursue that which will provoke his jealousy. And remember, God will bring chastisement and judgment upon you to avoid that judgment. Love him first. And everybody's like, oh, pastor, that was so convicting. Thank you. You gave me four points. That was great. Okay, and then I can preach a typical sermon and everyone will be happy. But it will be absolutely, utterly useless and meaningless. Because everyone's going to walk right out, get in their car and do what? demonstrate covetousness because they're probably going to start arguing about what they want to eat before they even get home. Right? Or, or get home and do exactly what on a Sunday? What you want to do. You're going to get home and go, what more could I do for God today? How could I study more today? How could I read more today? How could I pray more today? Now I'm going to take a nap. Demonstrating who comes first. God, you got your hour. You got your two. I, can't, I don't know if I'll be back tonight. Amen or oh me. So what's, what's the solution? I don't know. Is, does Deuteronomy 6 give us the solution? I can preach it like a solution. I mean, let's, let's be honest. If I could love the Lord that God with all my heart, mind, body, and soul, would idolatry ever be a problem? I, just honestly, like, like, just think about this, and then I will just try to at least wrap this up to some level, all right? Uh, we're not going to be able to, you know, do perfect on this, but at least want to get us thinking. So, so for summary, let's make it very clear. First and foremost, I think that, so if you want to take, like, major lessons from this, the first major lesson is this, is that I believe when we speak of idolatry, we've got to stop speaking of things, and we've got to speak of the thing. Stop speaking of video games is your idol, your girlfriend is your idol, movies is your idol, music is your idol. Let's speak of the idol. And what is the idol? It's the I. It's the I. Us, self. I think, that, I think that's a dramatic way to change our perspective on idolatry. You may disagree. I think it's, I think it's revolutionary because no one preaches it that way. Even that article, that, that comes from a very theologically sound site. And they, what's the focus on what? Everything else. Could be a girlfriend. Could be your yard. Could be this. Could be that. Could be this. Could, and it's like, that's not the problem. All of those things are what? Symptoms. They're evidences, right? That shows the disease. The disease is me. So I want to make sure we get that down, all right? Everybody got that down? Number two, I want you to just think, think about this. What would it really look like, honestly, if you love the Lord thy God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul? What, that, what would that truly look like? Because we all say it. Most Christians believe we can do it. 99% of Christians believe we can do it. I mean, the whole lordship argument. What's one, of the, what's one of the proofs that you're saved? In the lordship world. That you love the Lord thy God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. So they believe not only is it a, is it a possibility, not only is it a probability, if you don't do it, you're not saved. And I preached that a thousand times and everyone, it, 
in this church or anywhere else, we'd say, amen, amen, amen to what? None of us do it. Like, how can we be so self-deluded to think that we do? What does it true? What would it truly look like to love God above everything else? Could, could any temptation even impact you? Could any temptation? Because anything that would be contrary to God, what would you do? You would be like, why, why would I want that? I love God. Nothing would move you. I wish that was the solution because then I could just say, go forth and love God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. Has anybody been able to figure out how to do that? I mean, really, what would you need in life if you loved God above, every, above everything else? What would you need in life? Would you need relationships? Why, why would you need a relationship? Now, you say that, people are like, no, 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 no. Really, you can love God supremely and still have relationships. I just don't know. I don't know why I would need another relationship if I love God with all my heart and my body. What else would be left? Well, there, there, there is that. I'm, I'm not denying it. I'm just saying, like, I don't know what it would look like. I guess you could say, well, I love you, but you're second. But if I'm loving God with all my heart and all my mind, what would be left for anyone else? Wouldn't I be completely consumed with God? Now, I, I believe that we are to love God with our heart, mind, body, and soul. I think the reality is God knows, you know, we all know, it ain't happening. So what should that demonstrate to us? That I'm in trouble. Right? I'm in trouble. I'm in serious trouble. So therefore, remember this leads us to a basic understanding of of the way things work. So number one, I want us to consider what the real idol is. Number two, I really want you to just think about what it really would look like if you love God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. I think it would solve every problem that a Christian ever faces. Right? It would. The reality is clearly we haven't solved all of our problems, right? So clearly we don't love God with all our heart, mind, body, and soul. We're supposed to love our neighbors ourselves. We don't even come close to pulling that off. All right? Therefore, by not doing this, guess what? We're going to find ourselves in trouble. So go to Matthew 4. Matthew 4, verse 8, the devil, speaking, speaking of uh, the devil taketh him, the him there is Jesus, the devil takes Jesus up into an exceeding high mountain, showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them, and saith unto him, all these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. And Jesus saith unto him, get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only thou shalt serve. Then the devil leaveth him, and behold, angels came and ministered unto him. Now, nobody likes this. Now, typically this is preached. How is this, typi- how is this typically preached? Matthew 4. 
It's typically preached that Jesus gives us the way in which we can overcome all of our temptations. And how do we overcome all of our temptations? Okay, whenever we're faced with a temptation, we quote a scripture. Because Jesus quotes scriptures and makes references to scriptures here. Many believe in here he's making a reference to Deuteronomy chapter 6 about not having any other gods before the true God, right? Which what God told Israel, yes? So they're like, hey, just when you're facing that temptation, we just pull out the Bible and we quote scripture, right? This is how it's always, this was taught to me my whole Christian life. Whatever temptation you're facing, what do you simply do? Quote a scripture. And the temptation will magically go away. You will magically get extra strength because you quoted a scripture. I don't know if I believe, I, I think that's, well, I know it's not true. I mean, come on, how long have you been a Christian? How many scriptures have you ever quoted? Matthew 4 shows you three temptations that Jesus encounters, Right? What was the first one? Bread, right? Hey, instead of submitting to God's will, go ahead and get food for yourself. Second one is about tempting God. Hey, don't, don't worry about God's following God's will. Just now do something that you can do around it. So in a sense, tempt God, right? And then third is basically a call to idolatry. Now, guess what? In all three areas, Jesus was tempted... but did not sin. Meaning, my only ultimate hope is in the one who never committed these sins, never will commit those sins, who was perfect. In him, that obedience is imputed to me. That's my only hope, is to stand in him perfect. Now, am I saying, well, then just commit all the idolatry you want and put... I'm not saying that. I'm saying the reality is the idol is us. Now, yes, you can argue, are we supposed to die to self? Yes. Are we supposed to mortify self? Yeah. We're in a, ne- a never-ending bi- battle. But the never-ending battle with the idolatry is a never-ending battle with what? Self. The idol you're fighting is yourself. Your only hope is the one who defeated idolatry. And how did he defeat idolatry? Because he did not succumb to temptation. He obeyed the will of God. He obeyed the law of God. He, he obeyed the will of his father. That's our only hope. Nobody wants that as their only hope, do they? Everybody wants to come to church to hear three steps to overcome idolatry in your life. Well, the the easy step would be to love God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. I can't preach that because I know no one's ever going to do it. Right? It's like giving, it's like standing up in front of a class, giving everyone a test. And say the way to pass this class is to pass this test. But you know you're giving a test that no one can pass. It's an impossibility. Well, the only way to overcome uh, idolatry is to love God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. I'm telling you, you will never do that. Therefore, you will always be in the perpetual, perpetually guilty of what sin? Idolatry. Covetousness is idolatry. You'll be perpetually guilty of what sin? Covetousness and idolatry. 
Isn't that depressing? But if I preach it any other way, what would I be doing? Be lying to you. So I want you to think of idolatry as an issue with self. And I want you to really, I really want you to just think about what it would really look like. Because we talk about loving God with all our heart, mind, body, and soul. I just don't think we ever truly process what that actually would look like. I don't think we really do. I've struggled with that my whole life. Like, what would that really look like? Because it, to me, Christians say they do it, but they live their life just like everyone else. Pursue relationships, jobs, material things. Like, but we, we tell everyone else, no, 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 no. The difference between me and you is I love God with all my heart, mind, body, and soul. They're like, you're just as preoccupied with everything else. Maybe not the same things, but you're, you've got plenty of your own things. So what, what, would that, what would it really look like? Would we be, look, basically look like monks in a monastery? Everybody says, no, no, you know, you don't have to do that. Well, what does it mean to love God supremely? Yeah, I, 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 well, you still would have the problem here, but at least externally, they would look like they're doing something. And then, and then the third thing, I just want you to realize the only hope is in the one who did it, who did love God with all his heart, mind, body, and soul. That's my only hope because I know I don't. All right, we'll have to stop right there. Lord God, we come before you this morning. The temptation to put other things before you well, it's the temptation with self. It's, it's the temptation of putting us before you. Everyone in this room is guilty of it. We were guilty of it last night. We've been guilty of it today. We'll be guilty of, guilty of it tomorrow. Our only hope is not in trying to somehow stop that. Our all hope is in the one who absolutely never did that and loved you correctly and obeyed you correctly and never committed idolatry. That's our hope is in his obedience and his righteousness, and in that we stand, and in that we cling to. We ask this in Jesus' name, and God's people said, Amen. Yeah, I kind of designed that way. All right.